Welcome to a new edition of The Brand Called You. Today I have an author and someone who's very closely associated with books, Ridula Koshi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Ridula is a writer and uh, as she says, she's a literary movement activist. She's the author of It Is Sweet, uh, not only the things that have happened and Bicycle Dreaming, and she's associated with the Community Library Project. So, Brithula, tell me a little bit about your early career and how you got interested in books. Um, I was always a reader. Mm-hmm. And um, why was I always a reader? I don't know. I, I didn't always have access to books, but uh, periodically there would be a wealth of books. And um, I just uh, liked words and I liked um, syntax. I liked I didn't know I was liking syntax at the time. Mm-hmm. These are reflections from much later mm-hmm. in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was known as a bookish kid, um, read uh, books under the desk at school okay. or inside the textbook. You'd hide another book uh-huh. and read it, uh, read it, sharing it with the chi- the student next to me, um, looked for other people like me. So I think, you know, um, if you like books, then you start looking at the world through that prism. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help looking and noticing that. Um, there were not enough books, mm-hmm. um, or, or rather there was not enough access to books for most people. Okay. And that was sort of horrifying to me that I could have been someone who would have never mm-hmm. uh, come across this thing that has so much meaning correct. for me. Correct, correct. So before I come to the library project uh, or the community library project, you're also an author mm-hmm. and you have written in the past. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your books. Okay, so uh, I think it was 2004-05 when I came back to India after being gone for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. I left as a teenager, came back as a you know, a full-blown adult, mm-hmm. family, children, uh, really little children. My mm-hmm. youngest was three years old, and um, <clears throat> which meant I was at home and back in a... Uh, society in a city that I loved very much from mm-hmm. my childhood, Delhi, but that I didn't really understand okay. or know. And uh, in in that kind of stuck at home, can't leave um, um, setup that I was in as a mother of young children and helping them acclimatize mm-hmm. to a new place, and then filled with questions about where I had landed up and how my life would now play out in this place. I uh, started writing mm-hmm. as a way of answering those questions. I was particularly struck because when I lived in the United States, um, a lot of my formative experience were, were, were experiences to do with being a migrant mm-hmm. and a person of color, okay. um, a minority, as I think we would say in India. Yeah. And I felt <clears throat> um, often in my life in the United States um, disenfranchised and okay. reacted to that by... Um, thinking politically about those mm-hmm. questions. So coming to India uh, was about thinking politically and then mm-hmm. not being able to find political answers because okay. I couldn't exactly leave the house. Yeah. You really do need to leave the house mm-hmm. and talk to people mm-hmm. and find organizations Correct. to be able to uh, put your politics into practice. Mm-hmm. So again, um, I had a particular trajectory and a way of dealing with life and it wasn't working in Delhi. So. This completely new thing happened to me as someone in my mid-30s. Mm-hmm. It's kind of late in life to start writing, mm-hmm. I thought, because everybody I met who had 
who, who was writing at that time were people in their early 20s, mid-20s at the most. Um, so I, I started writing. Okay. Well, just to give you some little trivia, you know, I wrote my first book when I was 51. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, or 52 probably. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, uh, a couple of questions for you on writing again, you know, what makes a good writer? I mean, you know, not, obviously you shared, you shared your experiences when you, mm -hmm. you wrote, mm -hmm. but what makes a good writer? Um, I think uh, for me, maybe there's more than one thing that sure. makes a good writer and maybe as many things as there are writers, but probably there are some general things that mm -hmm. are true also. Um, I found that uh, to be a good writer, I should, I, I had to treat it like a job. Mm -hmm. I had worked before and I know it's about showing up. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you always get things done, but you have to show up. So okay. I found my way to this discipline of uh, sitting down uh, and, and treating it like a job was also important because I had young children at mm -hmm. home. So I had to stop at some point. You yeah. hear these legendary storied stories of yeah. uh, mostly male writers who... Um, I don't know, carouse all night, mm -hmm. roll out of bed in the morning, yeah. show up and write all day. And I think that requires a huge amount of support mm. systems, like mm. probably a wife helps. Um, I didn't have a wife, so I uh, had to show up myself. Mm -hmm. And it meant that I mostly did not carouse or party. I gave up a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a carouser to begin with, but I gave up things like being interested in other things. I Correct. became obsessively interested in writing. Okay. And kept alive um, that I had to parent mm -hmm. my children. So I would stop. I did not write on Saturdays and Sundays. Mm -hmm. I did not write after 6 p.m. Okay. I went to work. I wrote. I came home and I didn't write. Okay. So, and, and what did you write about? What were some of your topics? So those questions of um, what is India now? Mm -hmm. And because it had changed dramatically from the kind of quasi-socialist Nehruvian India yeah. that I grew up in. I grew up in, I, I spent all of the 70s in India mm -hmm. and the early 80s. And when I came back in 2004 and five, in four, I came back for just six months. And in five, I came back and I've stayed since then. Mm -hmm. When I came back, things were so dramatically different. Um, and some things were same. Mm -hmm. People still had domestic workers. Mm. So there is a lot of talk of new India and incredible India and, and uh, burgeoning economy and multiple opportunities. And some of my former classmates had gone from being um, people with a very specific life track ahead of them to doing mm. all sorts of interesting sure. things, you know, sure. buying and selling metal and mm. living abroad to do it and sort of entering a global capitalist mm -hmm. marketplace. But here at home, there was still someone who did jhadu pocha. Mm. That's, of course, quite different from sure. the United States. Sure. So I, I was very interested in questions of class, mm. in what was same and what was different in India. Mm. Um, and okay. it seemed to me that um, many, many structures had remained the same despite or um, alongside of all these differences. And that these threw up all kinds of new contradictions and how people were reconciling these contradictions. I was particularly interested in the working class point of view. Mm -hmm. um, in the United States, I was a working class person and had left India as a child of a government mm -hmm. bureaucrat and lived a fairly comfortable middle class life. Sure. So I'd sort of seen both classes mm -hmm. from the inside mm -hmm. and I was curious to see it 
here in Delhi, writing gives you this great Correct. opportunity to enter other lives, yes. at least in an imagined way. Mm. But it's not just some um, sort of uh, only a playful or um, um, lightweight exercise to imagine yourself in someone else because fiction forces you to answer questions. Mm. You can't just endlessly raise questions. Sure. There has to be somewhere you go with those. Uh, there's a kind of discipline built into fiction, which means if you sit down to write and you raise a question and you're curious about it, eventually you're forced. It's it's actually a very reductive process. Uh, it might actually be more freeing or more interesting to to have multiple answers to a question, but right. inevitably your book becomes one answer. I agree. I agree. Well, well said. So, Bridula, uh, let's move to the second part of the of our program, which is your community library project. Yes. Um, and I know you're very passionate about it. You just said that you spend most of your time uh, with this project. Tell me about the project. Um, we run uh, three plus one more. Mm -hmm. It's just opening uh, free libraries. Okay. And I want to really emphasize the free because there is right now in the kind of nascent uh, library movement in India, there are numbers of people interested in this question of seeing more libraries mm -hmm. in India because more libraries means more citizenship, Correct. more enfranchisement, right. more critical thinking, um, perhaps more humanity. Um, so as we look at the question of libraries, it's really important to think about what kind of libraries will we create? Mm -hmm. Will we create libraries for poor people mm -hmm. like we have schools for poor people? And then libraries for rich people, like we have um, schools for rich people. Mm -hmm. So a social good uh, that requires tremendous infrastructure and support um, and social uh, compact and goodwill. Um, should it uh, then bifurcate into a lesser thing for lesser people mm -hmm. and a greater thing for greater people? Sure. We run free libraries as a demonstration mm -hmm. that uh, A, it can be done, mm -hmm. that people will come. And then I think ultimately we are arguing that it must be done. Mm. Um, our libraries are excellent. We have, uh, so I said three plus one. So the last one is not open. The three that we have serve uh, collectively about 4,000 uh, wow. young people mostly, mm. some adults also. Um, 90 some percent of those we serve are from the working class. Mm. One indicator is um, they are children who attend the government schools, those schools that are not as good mm. as they might mm. be or should be. Mm. Um, so, yeah, okay. I, it is successful. Wonderful. Children are reading. Wonderful. And all of the conversations in India about people who don't read mm -hmm. um, are premised on this idea that only some people are actually people. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. our concern for the people who don't read, our fretting about it, the literary festivals and the workshops and the interventions wow. in schools are all only for some people. Okay. Presumably these other people are not people and that obviously we, we don't agree with that and anybody who stops and thinks about it would have to say, no, I don't actually agree with mm -hmm. that. So then if we're looking at the question of actually looking at people, we'll see that the majority yeah. of people in India are not reading yeah. because they don't have books. They it's not because they're not interested. Wow. Wow. So, you know, when I was reading about you, uh, one of the things that I, well, that caught my eye was that you, you believe that India needs a movement for books and reading. Uh, help me understand what this means. Um, what has resulted in people uh, not having access to books is not some historical accident, some 
I don't know, some happenstance, um, you know, we over oversight, you know. Oh, we thought of roads and we mm. thought of stadiums and we thought of airports, but we didn't think of libraries. Mm. Uh, now, someone will just remind us, perhaps in some sort of mm. bureaucratic way, a government can convene a commission or a study, and then we'll have, you know, libraries. Mm. No, I, I don't think it works that okay. way. There's a long history um, based on caste, mm -hmm. based on class, mm -hmm. based on this kind of colonial education system we've inherited mm -hmm. with its strong emphasis and pedagogy that favors um, rote learning. Um, these, these structures are mighty mm -hmm. and they have the weight in some cases, in the case of caste, of like a thousand years mm -hmm. or more. Um, so mm -hmm. how does one uh, undo that with a commission or a policy mm -hmm. or a study mm -hmm. one doesn't sure it involves um, anything anything of that uh, change of that nature must involve people okay. so what we mean by movement is we mean something that could work in in concert with a, a government study mm -hmm. but absolutely must be led by the people themselves okay. so okay. we need a movement we need to mobilize people only then will we really see libraries okay very interesting so you just mentioned to me that about 4,000 children are reading books mm -hmm. uh, in the library that you have got. Um, how are millennials changing uh, the way books are perceived? Because the general sense I have is that people aren't reading enough, but mm. you're saying that's because people don't have access to books. Yes. So the millennials in our library, the government school attending millennials, mm -hmm. um, they're anxious about many things and it takes uh, the presence of a library in their community to then also um, allow them that other anxiety, mm -hmm. which is the anxiety of have I read, what is reading, how do I read. Mm -hmm. um, people are inevitably attracted to books when okay. they're made available to them. Okay. So by the scores, by the droves, they show up mm -hmm. and um, they pick up books, uh, the 18-year-olds, the 25-year-olds. Mm -hmm. Books are not something they've had access to. Mm -hmm. Suddenly having access um, definitely brings them in the door with their desire to read, mm -hmm. but extremely limited by the fact that they haven't had access. So one of the things I think that they do for us in our library, coming in with their excitement and their interest, mm -hmm. and then um, sort of uh, stymied by um, the lack of fluency. See. People can teach you how to read and our schools, our government schools do a pretty decent job. There are very hardworking teachers with 55 children or 45 children in a class who nevertheless manage to make nearly everybody who comes out of the school sure. uh, a, a literate person in the narrowest sense of that word. Mm -hmm. So that 18 or 25 year old knows how to read, which may not be true of their father or mother. Okay. Um, but when they come in to read, they find that because they haven't been reading, they don't read fluently. Mm -hmm. And by fluency, I mean a certain number of words a minute, a certain uh, ease of being able to predict a few words ahead, what words are coming. That is how most of us mm -hmm. who are fluent read, is the page kind yeah. of leaps, the words leap sure. off of the sure. page. And there's almost no filter for mm -hmm. how quickly we absorb it. What um, we can do on the page is when we are reading that fluently, we are engaging almost all our intellectual energy, mm -hmm. uh, not so much in decoding the text, yeah. but actually thinking while, while reading. For the millennial in the library who hasn't been reading and who now wants to read, there's a huge um, 
uh, learning curve. Yeah, um, but also they're teaching us. So we do things in our library that involve maybe a person reading and many people mm-hmm. listening. Mm-hmm. So our library does not look like the silence, uh, please mm-hmm. library, mm-hmm. the library that yeah. has the imposing librarian mm-hmm. and the uh, collective uh, idea that everybody needs mm-hmm. to be in their own book. In our library, there are more discussion groups, okay. more book clubs, more going home and reading a few chapters and then coming back and working out with the person who is in the book club with you. What did I just read? What does this mean? I didn't understand these words. Um, and so I think reading itself is being redefined by these millennials. Okay. Yeah, that's very interesting. So a couple of more questions on, on, on your library project before I have some questions for you personally. Um, you know, if you look across the whole world, bookshops are closing down everywhere. If reading is something which is beginning to uh, grow, as you are saying, why are the shops closing down? Or is it that the medium of reading is beginning to change? Um, I think the, the, the bookshops closing down don't concern me very much because books... Um, monetized and and um, commodified and made available on the market in India will only serve a few people mm-hmm. because only a few people can afford them. We can't really go any more down than we are. Okay. We can only go up. We're mm-hmm. pretty near rock bottom anyway. Mm-hmm. Huge swaths of our country don't read and yeah. can't afford to read. So I think the direction of the future is libraries. Okay. Okay. And Wonderful. we can stop worrying about the bookshops. We'll okay. publish books and they will be library edition books and uh, when I re- when I wrote books, uh, I was lucky. Five thousand copies of my books sold. Mm-hmm. I think uh, if we have a hundred, we, if we have ten hundred thousand, ten lakh mm-hmm. libraries mm-hmm. is what we need in India. We probably only have about twenty to forty thousand libraries. It depends on how you count them. Correct. I'm talking about libraries that are open to mm-hmm. people. Um, if we make up that difference, it'll probably occupy the next one or two generations to do it. Mm-hmm. If we make up that difference, uh, publishers will be publishing mm-hmm. scores and scores of copies mm-hmm. of every book. Sure, I agree. Yeah. Okay. And one more question. You know, a lot of us have large personal book collections. Mm-hmm. If, you know, and so many people will see and listen to this you know, our conversation. Yeah. If people want to give away their books, how do they do it? Um, we have some guidelines on our website, which mm-hmm. is the Community Library Project. Mm-hmm. Um, we want nearly new books. Okay. We would love for people to just buy us books because everyone deserves to have good quality new literature sure. in their hand um, or classics, but in beautiful new editions. Uh, you can donate okay. your used books, but they should be in near mint condition. Okay. We ask you to bring them to us. We run on a shoestring mm-hmm. and most of us are working for free and around the clock mm-hmm. to make this happen. Sure. So it's very difficult to go out and collect books from people. If you drop them off at our libraries, we sort them. We've actually probably sent uh, around the country something in the range of 10,000 books um, to other libraries mm-hmm. because we live in Delhi and because this is a really rich city. Many, many publishers have uh, donated, remaindered or even mm-hmm. um, new books to us okay. that we've then passed on to dozens of libraries and we use them in our libraries also. Wonderful, wonderful. So just a few more questions now for you. Um, you know, you've lived in India, you lived in the US. Um, 
have you had any people who have had a strong influence on you and if yes um, what have been your learnings um, I used to be a trade union organizer okay I lost someone very important to me mm-hmm. uh, about a year ago um, she's been on my mind a lot since mm-hmm. then I would say that I almost um, talked to her so her name was Amy mm-hmm. and she was an organizing director in the union I worked in mm-hmm. so she taught me a lot of the skills I have okay. for which I'm very grateful she taught me how to build organizations mm-hmm. not uh, maybe in the way that I might have learned if I'd gone to an MBA school she taught mm-hmm. me how to build organizations despite uh, the market driven world in which we live mm-hmm. and uh, and and actually in in conflict with that market driven world the idea that a human being is bought and sold on this market their interests their curiosity mm-hmm. their talents um their worth is commodified uh, it was something she was very opposed to so that's kind of okay. the bedrock belief of the labor union movement okay. is that um we workers we produce the wealth and it should belong to us mm-hmm. it shouldn't be siphoned up you know So uh she taught me basic skills like mm-hmm. how to bring a group of people together how to hold a meeting how to make an organizing plan mm-hmm. how to have uh, an outcome from which you work backward yeah. uh, we we were always working backward from union elections we would bring people together mm-hmm. to form a union which involved this bureaucratic government mm-hmm. uh controlled process called a secret ballot yeah. election mm-hmm. now i work in community organizing i bring people together to build Uh, libraries mm-hmm. um the skills that she gave me uh included the skill of reporting it's something like as a writer you write and then you edit and then Good. you with yourself a lot Good. but ultimately you have to submit and yeah. publish mm-hmm. um reporting is something like submitting and publishing mm-hmm. it's where you do the work and then you have to have an honest a brutally honest assessment sure. Sure. of how the work went yeah. um who did i talk to did i actually talk to them face to face or did i you know sort of tell myself that i talked to them just mm-hmm. by picking up the phone and sure. leaving a message for them mm-hmm. to build an organization you have to do a lot of face to face conversations and uh, this is something that uh, i find myself at night reporting to her mm-hmm. she amazing. was a wonderful person a, a hardcore person amazing amazing so then my last question to you would be uh, you know on failure uh, a lot of us have failed mm-hmm. um, and yet in india particularly or everywhere in asia mm-hmm. we don't teach children that it's okay to fail mm-hmm. you know we keep pushing them to say you got to come first you got to do this you got to write mm-hmm. what have been some of your learnings from some of your mistakes or your failures um I, at times um I mean I failed in very big ways mm-hmm. at times uh, something I wanted very much to be successful at was being a really good parent mm-hmm. to my children mm-hmm. um to be dependable to be available to yeah. be um to to put lots and lots of hours into it to not just have it be an idea that right. I'm available but to actually be physically present and available mm-hmm. and yet as my children have grown up they've said things to me to mm-hmm. indicate that there were that, that there were places mm-hmm. you know where I wasn't available and it it's been shocking to me because I tried so hard sure. um 
the lesson i, I don't know it, it's all been so recent mm-hmm. they're just coming into their late teens and early 20s mm-hmm. and they're reporting back to me what their experience was in the family mm-hmm. having left the family having looked at other um setups mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. other ways of being say friendships or um other kinds of intimacies they're coming back and they're critiquing what their childhood mm-hmm. was and what their family life was and um i think i've believed in forgiveness always in our family we actually have a framed thing about what we believe in and one of the last things on the list is we believe in forgiveness okay. so i've been struggling mightily mm-hmm. with trying to forgive myself my mm-hmm. failings mm-hmm. and i know my kids have forgiven me mm-hmm. so i should probably do it too you should do it too. i agree Yeah. So Mridula thank you very much it's thank been an absolute you. pleasure thank speaking to you thank you for having me and good luck thank you for listening to the brand called you podcast be sure to visit tbcy.in to join the conversation access show notes and discover fantastic bonus content you can follow us on youtube twitter facebook and instagram simply search for the brand called you thank you and see you next week